Hey, thanks for tuning in. This week's message is on Gideon. Next week will be the, the same thing. I'm really excited about it. I uh, hope, hope you will be too. But uh, we're a rather small group here in Colorado, and we have a large online group, and we don't want anybody to feel obligated uh, to give because they watch the message. But if you would like to give, we would be most appreciative. And you can do that by going uh, to our website and pressing the donate button. Whatever the case, may God uh, richly bless you through the message, and you, may, you, may you believe uh, that he is madly, relentlessly in love with you. And so, Lord, with this message, may we praise you, our maker. Would you cause us to preach your word regardless of the consequences? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Judges chapter 6, verses 1 uh, and two, over 3,000 years ago, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And what do you suppose they, they did? And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. Midianites were nomadic people from the east, and together with the Amalekites, they would raid Israel during the time of planting and harvesting. Midianites, Amalekites, and, and other people worshiped the God of the Amorites, who were Canaanites, the people that God commanded Israel to drive from the land. Modern people often refer to the conquest of Canaan as genocide, and in a way, I suppose it was. God commanded the death of thousands upon thousands. At first, that sounds horrific, doesn't it? And yet, we believe that God has commanded the death of billions upon billions. He's commanded the death of all. If you believe that God will then torment these people endlessly, Scripture becomes unconscionable, and God appears to be more horrific than Hitler. If, on the other hand, you believe that these people will stand before God and be judged like all people must be judged and redeemed uh, by God, judged by God, redeemed by God, th th then uh, the stories take on an entirely different meaning because God is not delivering these people into torment. He's delivering them from torment. And I believe the Canaanites were in torment. For they worshiped gods that led them into the most horrific of evils, evils that I have encountered, evils that I've seen, child sacrifice, cult prostitution, demonic possession, and torture. Our Father in heaven is into discipline, but never torture. Verse 7, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. 
His voice is his word. That's God's word. So the evil that Israel did was that she did not trust God's word. And so she feared the gods of the Amorites. And so she suffered from Amorites, Midianites, and Amalekites. So here's a practical application point. If you don't want to live in bondage to Amorites, don't worship their gods. Don't fear their gods. Thou shalt have no other god before me. That's the first commandment out of the big ten. We seem to have forgotten it. Uh, it's also the great commandment. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Israel's problem was that she feared the, God of the, the gods of the Amorites. And, and check this out. We know who some of those gods were. This is Baal, or as most people say it, Baal. This is, a, this is an artist's depiction of the worship of, of Baal. Baal can also be translated husband, possessor, uh, ruler. Baal was a fertility god, also a storm god and a war god, much like uh, Odin of Norse mythology. He was often pictured as a bull because a bull was a symbol of virility. The worship of Baal sometimes involved the sacrifice of children. Babies. This is an Asherah, uh, or Asherim is, is the plural. An Asherah is a representation of the goddess Asherah. This is one from the Israeli Maritime Museum. Uh, Asherim were common in Canaanite uh, worship, they were often a cone of stone or a tree trunk that had been carved into the image of uh, the goddess. I think there's another slide there, Kevin. Yeah, there's one that they have at some museum somewhere. Asherah was a fertility goddess, sometimes a rival to Baal and sometimes the consort of Baal, the mate of Baal. Her worship was cultic prostitution. She promised to give life but she took life. In fearful devotion, people would sacrifice to Asherah, Baal, and the other Canaanite gods in order to feel safe and in order to, to prosper. Of course, people also sacrificed to Yahweh, but, but we now know that Yahweh had rather different intentions. Scripture refers to these lesser gods as idols. Isaiah 44, Isaiah writes this, Half of a tree a man burns in the fire. Over that half he, he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me. That is, save me, for you are my god. Isaiah is amazed at the way men will create something, then look to it for salvation, and even creation, the thing that they created. Shall I fall down before a block of wood, asks Isaiah. An idol can't create a person. Isaiah's pointing that out. An idol can't create a person, but maybe an idol can desecrate a person. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, he writes, that when Gentiles sacrifice to idols, they are uh, really sacrificing to demons. In Ephesians, he says, we battle not against principalities and powers, but against the world rulers of this present darkness. 
50 years ago, the Dutch theologian Henrik Burkhoff wrote a seminal book titled Christ and the Powers in which he analyzes that phrase that Paul uses, the principalities and powers and the world rulers of this present darkness. Burkhoff points out that Paul is referring to social institutions, systems of thought, sociologies, psychologies, ideologies, but not just inanimate systems. He's also referring to demonic or spiritual realities that inhabit those systems and influence those systems. And so I know some of you have had encounters with demonic entities. Maybe not all of you, but some of you, because you tell me about it. You've had encounters with demonic entities, and you've learned to name the name of Jesus and drive them away. But according to Scripture, rebellious spiritual entities don't just show up to freak you out in the middle of the night. They inhabit governments and systems of, of thought, institutions. They, they appear to have been created by the Creator to govern His creation. But like us, they have fallen into rebellion. So in the Old Testament, you'll notice that different nations have different gods. Just as different nations have different sociologies, psychologies, and thought patterns. And some of those gods would be specialized, like war gods, fertility gods, economic gods, etc., etc. In Colossians, Paul writes that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the principalities and powers. He disarmed them. It's like he took away their bullets and exposed them as, as a lie. Well, anyway, Israel did evil by fearing the gods of the land that they had come to inhabit. So we should ask, what are the gods of the land that we have come to inhabit? What are our American gods? Ideas? Military? Yeah. Power? Tons of money? Lawyers, guns, and money? <laughs> like a trinity. Uh, other ideas? Cell phones, yeah. Entertainment, yeah. Culture, yeah, our culture. Ed what's that? Education, yeah. Sorry, I listened to too much Leonard Skinner, and now I can't hear very well. It's like you worship a false god, and that's what happens to you. But yeah. <laughs> What? Legalism, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think all of those, I think all of those are, are right. Here's a, here's a few that, that came to my mind, and I think you kind of mentioned, mentioned them. This is the Wall Street Bull found in the financial district in Manhattan. It's come to symbolize um, American uh, prosperity or virility. In fact, if you walk around on the backside of this bull, you'll notice that it has huge virility. <laughs> well, I'm not arguing here that the stock market is necessarily evil. I'm just pointing out that the stock market is something that's made by man, and it can't truly make you prosper. It can't truly make you prosper in the way that God wants you to prosper. It can't make you fruitful in the image of God. This is the Statue of Liberty. In the background, you can see the World Trade Center. Lady Liberty was a gift from France and is a representation of the Roman and pagan deity, Libertas. 
This is what immigrants see when they enter the New York Harbor, not a statue of Jesus, but the statue of a pagan deity holding the Declaration of Independence. Now, I'm not arguing that we should tear down the Statue of Liberty, but I would question the idea that the U.S. government could ever set anyone free. The U.S. government, someone mentioned this, is a system of laws. It's legislation made by man, and it cannot set you free. We could seriously sit here for hours naming gods, go home, live our lives a little bit, come back, and then find, find hundreds and thousands of more. It, recently, my daughter read this best-selling book entitled American Gods. Maybe some of you have seen that. And then my wife started reading American Gods, and then we started watching the television show American Gods based on the book American Gods. And now let me say American Gods is not family viewing, okay? <laughs> it's incredibly graphic. But it's graphic in the way that the Bible is graphic. And its depiction of the gods so far seems to be awfully biblical. <laughs> awfully biblical. To a man, they were expert seamen, yet no expertise can surmount a sea that does not wish you to reach shore. Until, finally. The celebration was cut short. The land reached was barren, rocky, no food, no shelter, only biting insects and snakes. It was time to leave this accursed land. But their sails hung flabby, and the wind did not wish them to leave. They would be calm to stride hell. Lucky they knew, wind can be reasoned with. The All-Father could intercede with the wind on their behalf, but they feared he would not know to look this far from home. They would have to make him look. It was obvious now what was required. After all, their god was a war god. They left in a hurry, not bothering to sew their wounds or burn the dead. And when they reached their home shores, not one of them ever set foot in a boat or spoke of that new world ever again. Over 100 years later, when Leif, the fortunate son of Eric the Red, would rediscover that land, he found his god waiting, along with his war. Their God reminds me of Baal. And in the show, it turns out to be Odin. 
And Odin is still hanging out here in America. In fact, this is Odin explaining how things work to a man sitting next to him on an airplane. It's all about getting people to believe in you. It's not their cash, it's their faith. We'll take this plane, for example. This 80-ton chub of metal, seat cushions, and Bloody Mary mix has no right to be soaring through the sky, but along comes Newton and explains something about the airflow over the wing creating an uplift or some such shit, none of which makes a lick of sense, but you got 82 passengers back there who believe it so fiercely the plane continues its journey safely. Now, what's keeping us aloft? Faith or Newton? Odin and the other gods want faith because if people stop believing in them, they will cease to exist. You know, even physicists now argue that reality is somehow dependent upon our um, observation or our faith, for back, lack of a, of a better term. Well, the gods want faith, or at least devotion, but ultimately they can only get devotion through fear, and that looks like sacrifice. The gods feed on people. They feed on people. Like you might feed on body broken and bloodshed. Sacrifice. Like what, for, for God? What's a God? Can we even know they exist? People believe things, which means they're real. That means we know they exist. So what came first, gods or the people who believed in them? All right, so where was all this before I met you? On the periphery, just outside. There's always a window. People are frightened to look through it. Safer in the prison cell. We're not safe now. No, we're not. told you, you wouldn't believe me. Once after a truly, utterly amazing encounter with Jesus and the devil, my wife heard the Lord say, with fear, you put flesh on the evil one. See, I don't think the evil one has the power to murder six million Jews. But through fear, he can take on flesh and get people to do it for him. Well, Odin is an old god, and he's trying to enlist other old gods, like Vulcan. Vulcan uh, runs an armament factory somewhere in the Midwest where he manufactures Vulcan bullets. There's also a, a goddess who acts just like Asherah. She doesn't produce life through sexuality. She actually consumes life. Odin is trying to enlist some of the old gods to battle the new gods who are competing for the devotion of Americans like beasts might compete with each other for food. These are some of the new gods that we meet in the show. This is Mr. World, who's like world trade and globalization. His concert is a woman that looks like Marilyn Monroe and uh, Lucille Ball. I think she's like the media. They have an unruly son who is uh, technology. It's not just a TV show, according to Scripture. There actually are American gods. They compete for your devotion, demanding sacrifice. 
even human sacrifice and prostitution. And if you're a believer, you're battling against them right now, right now. And so I asked you to think of some American gods, and now I'll ask you to think of some American fears. Maybe your fears. You don't have to answer this out loud, but just in silence answer the question, what am I afraid of? What am I afraid of? And could my fears be related somehow to these gods? If you're afraid of a stock market collapse, maybe you're worshiping the wrong god. If you're afraid of losing your liberty, maybe you're devoted to the wrong deity. If you're afraid of Midianites, maybe you need to stop serving their idols, like, like Israel. And if you're afraid of God, the Lord God, maybe you don't know him. Or maybe you don't know him well. Maybe the God you know is largely a God of your own construction, that is, an idol. You know, Scripture says God is love. And then it says this amazing thing, perfect love casts out fear. So fear, fear is the beginning of wisdom. Scripture says that. It's the edge of wisdom. Fear is the beginning of wisdom, but perfect love is the end of fear. God is perfect love, and God is our Father. So God is a Father that says something like this to his children, like a father talking to his child. Look at me! Don't you fear the kids on the bus. Don't you fear what your th friends think. Don't you fear what anybody, don't you fear what anybody, you fear only me. Are you looking at me? Are you paying attention to me? Look at me, fear only me. Now listen to me. I love you. And I will always, always love you. Now, no more fear. No more fear. If you truly know perfect love, who is God and your Father, you will have no fear. And yet everyone I know has plenty of fear. Even if they deny the fear, hide the fear, sublimate the fear, or lie about their obvious imprisonment of fear that secretly motivates everything that they do. Everyone seems to have fear. In other words, everyone I know, at least in part, is an idolater. But you see, your, your fears can teach you something. It's not as if they don't have a purpose. Israel's fear revealed that she was serving idols. So, so when you become aware of fear, don't run from the fear, don't bury the fear, don't sublimate the fear. And check this out, don't fear the fear, which is just more fear. Circle of fear. Stare at the fear. Learn from the fear. Ask yourself, what am I so afraid of? You see, I think the answer will lead you to an idol, like Baal or Asherah, 
the stock market, the U.S. government, or, or one, maybe one that's worse than all of the others combined. But when you find the idol, now this is a good question, when you find the idol, how do you destroy the idol? Without creating more idols. I'm not sure that you can. Next verse, Judges 6.11. Now, now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite. That's a family descended from Joseph. While his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. Now, you'd normally thresh wheat on a hill where the wind would blow it away, but Gideon is threshing the wheat in a wine press. It's a, de it's a depression uh, so that the Midianites won't see the dust cloud. Carl pointed this out in our Bible study this week. He said, Peter, did you notice that Gideon is literally choking on his own fear? Next verse, and the angel, but which means messenger, by the way, the angel, singular, the angel of the Lord. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, you've got to check out the messenger, the angel of the Lord. He's this wild character that shows up in the most bizarre situations, and he is referred to, get this, in our story, he will be referred to as Yahweh. And yet, he is a man. And check this out, he is like God's Word in flesh. Who could that be? The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, choking on his own fear, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor, hiding in a wine press, choking on his own fear. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? <laughs> Do you ever feel like, like Gideon? And say, God, all these incredible miracles happen in the Bible, and maybe you even saw some in the past, but where are they now? Where are they now? And where do you get off calling me a man of valor? Can't you see I'm hiding in a wine press, choking on my own fear? Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And, and where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Is that true? Has the Lord given them into the hand of Midian? Yeah. That's what we read in the very first verse. But has the Lord forsaken them? No. No, 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 no. The God-man is standing right in front of Gideon under a tree as Gideon chokes on his fear, surrounded by the components necessary for the manufacture of what? Bread and wine. The Lord is with him. God with us. Emmanuel is how you'd say it in Hebrew. He's so with us that he even know what it's like to cry out in fear, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows. And the Lord, Yahweh, turned to Gideon and said, Go, go, Gideon, in this might of yours. <laughs> what might is that? Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. 
But Gideon still doubts. He's still afraid. So in verses 17 through 24, Gideon asks the God-man to wait. And he runs back to his house, and he gets some um, bread cakes and some meat. He brings them back uh, to the God-man, standing under the terebinth tree, and uh, he places them on a rock. The God-man tells him to do it. And then he touches his staff to the rock, and the sacrifice is consumed by fire. But not only the sacrifice, for the God-man disappears as if in the fire. It's as if Gideon sacrifices and the God-man sacrifices himself in the same fire. Or maybe he is the fire. Verse 22, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of Yahweh. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Verse 25, that night the Lord said to Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal. And remember that Baal is a bull. So this is a whole lot of bull. This is like a Baal bull joke upon Baal by, by God. Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he, he, he did it by night. In the morning, the men of the town threatened to kill Gideon, but his father intercedes. His father intercedes for him, saying, if Baal is a god, let Baal contend against him. In fact, that becomes Gideon's new name. Jeru Baal, let Baal contend against him. In the next verse, Baal does contend against him. Do not think that if you are obedient to the Lord, things will necessarily get easier. <laughs> That's not what it means. It actually means that you're more of a threat to the principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness. So Gideon he thinks that he's got the victory. And then Baal contends against him. Verse 33, now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Next verse, God clothes Gideon. Gideon blows a trumpet and he gathers 32,000 Israelite warriors and yet he's still afraid, and that's when he sets out the fleece and subjects the Lord to empirical scientific testing in a controlled environment. You know, science, <laughs> science is not a new God. Science is an ancient, ancient God, and amazingly, in this story, God complies. He doesn't have to, but he does. Then chapter seven, verse one, now pay attention. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, 32,000, rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. That's crazy. That's just like saying, you have too much knowledge to ever get wisdom. You have too much money to ever know prosperity. You have too much power to ever experience freedom. 
You have too many soldiers to win the war, Gideon. Too many soldiers to win the war. And not the war with Midian, the war with fear. Fear and the last idol. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me, lest, lest Israel boast over me. So what's the idol here? Israel. And you know, in the New Testament, Israel is referred to as the church. Did you know that this could be an idol? And likewise, this could also be an idol. If you think this saves you, it's an idol, an idol. And what is this? This is us. A church is, is people. Listen closely, 7, 1 through 2. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. The idol behind every idol that inflicts you with fear and traps you in the darkness, the idol behind every idol is you. When you create an idol, you try to create your creator, which makes you what? Like the uncreated creator. And so the ultimate idol is always you. That's why you can't deliver yourself from idolatry because the last idol is you. That's why you can't save yourself from sin, because the cause of sin is you. That's why you cannot deliver yourself from bondage, because the bondage is you. That's why you can't rid yourself of fear, because the source of all your fears is you. You are afraid that you, the idol, the American idol will fail. You are afraid that you will not be able to make yourself in the image of God with your knowledge of good and evil. You are afraid, and I think sometimes you're mostly afraid of not being afraid. Because if you're not afraid, you're afraid that you will not be motivated at all. You're afraid because you think fear is salvation, and your fear will save you. You think, if, if, I, if, if I'm not afraid, if I'm not afraid, I'm not going to get up, I'm not going to go to work, I'm not going to mow the lawn, I'm not, if, I'm, if I'm not afraid, I'll die. And you might. But Scripture teaches if you are afraid, you're already dead. Dead in your trespasses and sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh, the day you eat it, you will die. John writes, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, or better translated, fear is its own punishment. You don't even have to come up with it. Fear is already the, the, the punishment. Fear is not salvation. God is salvation which means love is salvation. In 1 Corinthians 13, 8, love does not fail. So no fear. 
The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me, lest they think myself is salvation. You know the name Jesus means God is salvation, or Yahweh is salvation. Yahashua, which gets shortened into Yeshua, which in English is Jesus. About 20 years ago, I began to see and even believe that Jesus always wins. He always wins, even when he loses, especially when he loses, he wins. And he came to seek and save the lost. And what does that mean? He will seek and save the lost, all of them. It doesn't mean that none are lost now. In fact, you can't be saved unless first you're lost. It doesn't mean that none are lost now. And, and, and Scripture reveals that many sons of the kingdom are lost and, and will weep and gnash their teeth in outer darkness. They just won't stay there forever without him because Jesus is the end. I learned that this was the dominant belief in the early church. I read it in the greatest theologians. I had it confirmed in miraculous ways. Over and over again, preaching through the Scripture, I found it in Scripture, and yet the more I preached, good news, God saves the more some people got really nervous. And then after they got nervous, they got really angry. And I was genuinely bewildered, wondering what are they so afraid of? I mean, I explained it. I thought, this make it. I was bewildered. What are they so afraid of? I was genuinely bewildered until the day I realized that the more I preached God is salvation, the more I also preached, and you are not. You and your fear are not. The more I preached the success of Jesus, the more I preached the failure of Mises. That's what I call him, the false god me. Mises, me is salvation. We have a lot of names for the false god, me, but in America, a very popular one is choice. We even say this, salvation is your choice. Did you hear that? Your choice is salvation instead of God is salvation? We say things like, God will not violate your free will, which is true in one way, depending on how you define it, and so incredibly not true in another way. We say things like, your free will is undetermined. It's undetermined, that's why it's free. So I sometimes ask people, is your free will a thing? And they'll usually say yes. And then I'll say, did God create that thing? And then Americans have a harder time answering that question. If God created it and sustains it, for he sustains all things, if God created it and sustained it, then surely in some way he determines it. But if God didn't create it, it is obviously the uncreated creator. And you're God. And no wonder you're afraid because you're really doing a poor job of it being God. If God didn't create it, it's the uncreated creator. Or 
It actually is the uncreated creator. I mean, it's God himself, Yahweh himself, at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure, as, as Paul writes. So, but, then, but in that case, you cannot be proud of your good free will. You must constantly be grateful for your free will. In other words, all glory goes to Jesus and not to Mises. Now, that was a lot of philosophical mumbo-jumbo, so if you didn't follow that, that's okay, but you can follow this. If you give the glory to Jesus, which means God saves, you will be most happy when God has done the most saving, right? But if you give the glory to Mises, which means me saves, you will secretly resent the salvation of all others, except, of course, those that you think you have saved, which you really haven't saved. But you will secretly resent the salvation of others, and you will be a prisoner of fear, unable to love, and on your way to outer darkness, where sons of the kingdom weep and gnash their teeth as they see throngs of people come from the east and the west to sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God, just like Jesus says. If you worship the false god, Mises, oh, crap, no wonder you're terrified. It's no wonder Americans are neurotic, for we worship American gods, and it's no wonder that American Christians may be most neurotic, because we often refer to American gods as if they were Jesus, when, when in fact they're all a form of Mises. My fear, my choice, my will, salvation. That's an idol. You see, it's not just an obscure theological issue. I think it's every issue. It's your every issue. It's my every issue. Whether or not we have faith in Mises or Jesus, to use it in Paul's terms, whether or not we have faith in human flesh or the Spirit of God sent to dwell in us like a fire in an earthen vessel. Ten years ago, I came to believe that I was called to do battle with the last idol. And I figured that you, some of you who were there at the time, and now you that have joined us are probably called to do that as well. And so the story of Gideon was the first or second sermon that I ever preached at the sanctuary, and, and I was not, and I still am not, I'm not quite sure exactly what it means. I'm called to do battle with fear, and yet I am often so afraid. And this is what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that there's too few of us and I'm afraid that I don't know what I'm doing. I'm afraid that we have little strength and too little knowledge. Next verse. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast after me over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful, trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. That's nuts. And yet, did you know that is what Israel was uh, commanded to do every time they went into the battle? You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 20. The general is to stand in front of them. And in chapter 8, this is now I quote, he's to say to all the, all the soldiers, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Well, let him go home, lest he make the heart of his fellow melt like his own. Can you imagine if we did that at the start of every battle? Listen, you Marines! If you're scared, you're nervous, you're afraid, well, go home. 
We do just the opposite. Listen, you Marines, if you go home, we'll find you, and then you'll really be scared. We manage fear with more fear, both in the army and in the church. But you can't defeat fear with more fear. Just like you can't defeat idols with more idols. You can't defeat sin with more sin or flesh with, with more flesh. If you're afraid, go home and 32,000 is reduced to 10,000. God takes away what we would call strength and, and, and that makes a, a little sense. You can twist it in a way that it makes a little sense. But what happens next makes no sense. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone whom I say to this one, this one won't go with you, they shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down uh, to drink the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now commentators go absolutely nuts trying to explain why 300 men that lap the water with their hands is better than 9,700 men who lap the water with their tongues. But when you really analyze it, it makes no sense. And is that not the last idol? <laughs> Our sense. I mean, the idol is our knowledge of good and evil and the strength of our own will. The false god is me. Well, Gideon drastically reduces Israel's, or God drastically reduces Israel's strength, then makes the remainder surrender their knowledge and their strength. Then through that remnant, God defeats Baal and Asherah, and the Midianites, and the Amalekites, and, and, and fear. You know, Paul says there is an immeasurable greatness of power in those that, of us that, that believe. And God is an immeasurable greatness of power. He is eternal fire in jars of clay. And that's how the 300 defeat the Midianites, Amalekites, and Amorites. And that's how God defeats the world rulers of this present darkness. And that is next week's sermon, <laughs> for which this sermon is really the introduction. But, but before we end today, let, let me just say this. There are some of you that to the best of your ability, you have really given yourself to God. And for a time, you grew in strength and you grew in knowledge, and you saw miracles. But then another time came in which it felt like God took your strength away, and God took your knowledge away, and you just did not know what you were doing, and you feel like a failure. 
the gods of this world will lie to you and say you are a failure. And in a way, I suppose, I suppose that maybe you are. In a way, I suppose that maybe you have failed, and yet you have never, ever been closer to victory, a victory greater than anything that you can even begin to imagine. Well, Gideon tasted the victory, but it was just an appetizer. After Gideon dies, which, by the way, is the ultimate surrender of strength and knowledge, right? After Gideon dies, Israel reverts to idolatry and fear. If you know your Bible, you know that God begins with humanity, and then he whittles humanity down to Israel, and then he whittles Israel down to Judah, and then he whittles Judah down to 12 plus this one guy, and then he whittles that down to Jesus. And he is a radically different kind of man, and he is a radically different kind of God. Now, I have very little hope in the theology of the TV show American Gods. I mean, it's going to be on again tonight. Who knows what on earth will be on there. But in the last episode, they introduced Jesus. And even the folks at Stars Entertainment could not help but notice this is a radically different kind of God. He doesn't exist because we believe in him. We exist because he believes in us. He thinks us into existence. He doesn't need to feed on us, but he tells us to feed on him. Body broken and blood shed, broken bread and wine. He doesn't demand that we sacrifice to him in fear, but he has arranged all things that we could see him sacrifice himself for us and to us in love. He is love, and he longs for us to love like him in freedom. In this scene, some illegal immigrants are swimming across the Rio Grande when one begins to drown.
Did you notice the name printed on the bullet? Vulcan. <laughs> That's how God in Christ Jesus defeats the principalities and powers and the world rulers of this present darkness. God whittled Adam down to the last Adam, Jesus, and whittles Jesus down until he's utterly depleted of strength and he doesn't know why. Nailed to the tree in the garden, he cries, my God, my God, why? And yet he still chooses to say, Father, forgive them. And into your hands I commit my spirit. When all the rulers of this present darkness conspire against him and try to determine him, determine him, uh, try to make him in their own image, he still chooses to love. He is God's free will. He is God's good choice given to us. His earthen vessel is broken and he bleeds fire. And in this way, God makes all things new. This is my body, he says, given to you. And this cup is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. Dark cup is wine, light cup is juice. We'll talk about this next week. And the Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel. Not headhunters in Irian Jaya, Israel, the ecclesia. Save Israel from the hand of the enemy. Do not I send you. He said that to Gideon, and he says that to you. And I know what you think, this might of mine, what the heck are you talking about? What is it and how do I get it? That's what we'll talk about next week. And check this out, it's already in you. The Lord says this to Gideon when he's choking on fear in the bottom of a wine press. <laughs> so in Jesus' name, um, believe the gospel. And next week, we'll talk about how it gets out of you and into the world, okay? So um, I hope you do come back next week because this will be the second part of the, the sermon. And I think it's just, it's so cool. I, I, we'll talk about the fire in the clay vessels. Um, it's Father's Day, which means most people stay home from church and drink beer and watch TV or something. So uh, you are hereby commissioned to poke your father and bring him to church next week in the name of Jesus. And also, if you would like prayer, uh, members of our prayer team, Ted and Sasha are down front here, they would, they would love to pray with you. So have a great week.